everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The View from Venus. My name is Mary Churchill, and on today's episode, I am joined by co-host Meg Palladino and Lee scalarup Bassett, and guest expert Padmini Ray Murray, founder of Design Beku, a feminist collective in India focused on technology and design. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Padmini about her reasons for leaving academia and starting her own nonprofit, the intersection of feminism and digital humanities, and the gendering of physical and virtual spaces. You will walk away with our best tips and advice for thinking differently about the ways in which space is gendered. And as always, at the end of the episode, we'll have a recommended assignment for you. Padmini Ray Murray is the founder of Design Beku. Padmini established the first degree level digital humanities program in India at the Shrishti Institute of Art, Design, and Technology, where she was course director from 2016 to 2018. She is currently co-investigator on Gendering the Smart City, and she served as a trustee for Wikimedia UK from 2013 to 2014. We asked Padmini to join us on View from Venus because we wanted to hear more about her work on gender and space. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited about this conversation. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So today's question is an easy one. Um, I would like to know, what is your favorite breakfast food? Um, mine is definitely pancakes with maple syrup. And I don't like them with chocolate chips or blueberries, just like plain old pancakes with maple syrup. I think it's really the maple syrup I like. <laughs> Big fluffy pancakes. <laughs> yes, they're just a vehicle for the maple syrup. But I always say if I could be in a pancake eating contest, I would totally win. <laughs> Mine is seasonal. So, and, and we're right now entering, uh, ending winter and entering spring. So I'm changing day to day. But my typical winter is um, oatmeal with bananas and cinnamon, sometimes some walnuts. But in the summer, I really, or the warmer months, I really like things like cheese and uh, fruit and just really light food. So I really change with the seasons. What about you, Lee? Uh, so if we're talking about my all-time favorite, we're going to go with like the traditional, quote-unquote traditional Quebecois breakfast, which is like all the protein and fatty meats. Um, it is, it is just like, give me the eggs and the bacon and the sausage and not pancakes, but crepes. Like there's that French side to it. Um, and then there's this, there's this really great, and it's more of a winter thing, but I mean, it's, it's Quebec, it's Canada. So winter is like 90% of the time. Um, there's this really great thing that we, that you spread on toast and it's called croton. And it's basically just like pork fat with a bit of salted pork fat with a little bit of pork in it. That it's like, it's like, it's, it's, um, country pate, right? Like that's basically wow. what it is. And Mini, what about you? Wow. Uh, that sounds amazing, Lee. And I think next time in Canada, <laughs> I need to, need to get me some of that. Um, so I feel really, really relatively boring. So I really like muesli. <laughs> Oh, um, obviously. Yeah. So, usually, big cup of coffee. I mean, I do definitely have cravings for the big bang up breakfast every now and then. Um, but yeah, I would say that's that's pretty much my staple, which I enjoy. I also quite enjoy. I don't know what they're called in America, but soldiers and half boiled eggs. Do you, are soldiers familiar? No. I've heard of that. I've heard of that. It's something so, like my parents used to like. Yeah, so soldiers are basically when you have hot buttered toast and you slice them up into like oh. um, lengthwise slices and you dip it in the soft boiled egg. Ooh. So it's, it's very British. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> yeah. So Lee's gonna get us started with our heavy content questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you decided to leave academia uh, in 2018, and then you founded Design Beku. Am I pronouncing that right, Beku? Beku. Beku. Sorry. Yeah. Um, what motivated you to do this, and uh, what have you learned in this process? Oh gosh. Um, okay. So what motivated me to do it? Um, so uh, I think I think a lot of it was uh, motivated by coming back to India. So I was in the UK for around 15 years, which is um, the time during which I did my PhD, and then I was teaching, and then I came back to India, um, and I came back to join a design school, which is very dis um, interdisciplinary. Uh, it's called the Shishti Institute for Art, Design, and Technology. And um, so as a consequence, um, you know, I think just being at Shishti really kind of widened my perspectives, and uh, digital humanities was not really an established discipline here. So, you know, that's kind of, um, I, I set up a master's program at Shishti doing that. Uh, but then just realized that working in India, what was much more crucial was a public humanities um, and needed to kind of move outside the academy to ensure that that you know, kind of public humanities, um, you know, kind of had, was embedded. And so, yes, yeah, so I think, um, you know, myself and a couple of colleagues at Trishti felt that there was a great need for this. Um, we also kind of came across lots of small organizations and not-for-profits that needed something like it. So, yeah, so that's how, how it came into being. So that's interesting that um, I'm always interested in the fact that these kinds of things can't be done within academia or while maintaining an academic um, tie. It's very interesting that there seems to be a need to do this separate from academia. Um, could you speak to that just a little bit? Because I think that as an administrator in higher ed, I wanna learn how we can better support these types of projects from within higher ed. Sure. Um, I think, uh, so I mean, India has a vast public education system and, you know, of course, while it has its troubles, it's, it's pretty effective. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's, that we couldn't have established what we're doing um, within the academy, but I do think um, the kind of um, interdisciplinary uh, embedding of this kind of work, so moving from theory to praxis, um, is harder to do in the academy. Uh, than it is to do in the outside world, so to speak. Um, just because we infrastructurally, we're still um, pretty nascent. Uh, I think just the concept of, you know, working in the digital humanities or even the concept of the public humanities is still quite, quite new. And I think we did want to be in a space where we could push that um, to kind of demonstrate that it doesn't have to be only within the academy that these learnings can happen. Because, you know, we live in a, in a profoundly unequal um, uh, society in terms of, uh, income, in terms of caste, in terms of um, your know, gender, uh, and so not everyone makes it to education, uh, to formal education, and so therefore we kind of felt like we would probably be reaching more myriad kinds of audiences by doing this. No, and that's that's what I thought you were going to say, <laughs> because I and so I'm in a college of education right now, and um, I'm trained as a sociologist, but it is really wonderful to see my colleagues in this college of education so focused on access right so focused on how do we reach the people who don't come to us how do we make sure we're more embedded within local communities so um i think you're right i think yes. 
my colleagues, that's unique. And that's, of course, why I'm attracted to them um, rather than the traditional sociologists, uh, which, I, you know, I love that too. Mm -hmm. But um, so what have you learned since you launched this? <laughs> um, <laughs> <ooh>. uh, <laughs> so so I, think, I think I've learned that I was never meant to be an academic. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny. Um, I mean, I love it's 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 funny. I love research. I don't enjoy I don't enjoy the kind of uh, you know the 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 circuit. You know, like I, I love going. Obviously, you go to conferences and you make, you make friends and all of that. But you know, the whole the publishing cycle and all of that. I mean, actually, to be honest, I think after a point, it feels a little irrelevant working in the context that we are. Um, so, I mean, I used to work. I, I was a trustee for uh, the Wikimedia Foundation. Uh, when I was in the UK and I kind of feel like that kind of work felt a bit more like I could kind of speak outside uh, to different audiences and this is similar I think. Um, we do, we still do a lot of kind of research-led uh, work but it's not about you know publishing, it's not about you know going to the conferences etc even though that still you know forms a small part of what we do. Um, I think uh, what I've also learned is that it's very difficult to run a small um, small organization. I think, you know, I've been protected or sheltered by academia for a very long time. And so um, just learning how to run an organization, <laughs> however small, and we have lofty ambitions of this being a feminist collective. So, you know, what does that mean in terms of leadership? What does that mean in terms of organizational values? What does that mean in terms of, uh, you know, very prosaic things like money um, and compensation? How, you know, how do we ensure everything is fair? And that's a nice segue to my next question, which is about feminism and digital uh -huh. humanities. <laughs> so what do <laughs> right. the feminist spaces within DH look like and how could they improve? So, um, so I'm going to speak to my, you know, personal context and personal local context, I guess, first. Um, I think, um, again, you know, in, it's, it's very unequal, right, in, in terms of access. I think one of the most exciting things that has happened in the last few years is that um, as the internet has become more ubiquitous, as, you know, connectivity has become more ubiquitous, we have a lot of um, young and also not so young uh, Dalit scholars, so non-dominant class scholars, moving into the space, um, you know, being very vocal, being very visible, which, you know, traditional um, apparatuses of scholarship and, you know, um, uh, educational um, uh, infrastructures didn't support because they were often not in formalized institutions or um, not working in English. Uh, and that has, that has definitely shifted, uh, which has made it really uh, exciting. And it also means that it has become, it is a challenge to uh, feminists, dominant caste feminists in this country, because I think we are now truly having to grapple with what it means to be intersectional. Um, and I think that's great. Uh, I think it was long overdue. Um, so that's kind of one conversation that's really unfolding in, I would say, in DH because most of these conversations are happening on places like Twitter, it's happening on places like um, blogs, it's happening on places like Facebook, Instagram as well now, increasingly. These are all, you know, being harnessed as uh, activist spaces. So, um, yeah, so it's really, but it's also on the flip side, the wonderful flip side of that is to see feminist solidarities growing as well. So I think 
you know, the, the recent events in this country with um, you know, a lot of leadership being shown by Dalit and Muslim women, a lot of those solidarities are being made more visible and it's more possible to interact with those because of things like social media. So um, you know, the, those digital spaces have allowed for those conversations to unfold. It's also allowed for testimony to exist um, in a way that we haven't before, ha haven't had before, um, which is a, like a counter counter uh, point to you know a national narrative. So, so I think that's what's what's happening for us locally and um, you know um, personally. And I think in the larger in the larger context, I think um, you know I mean DH feminist DH is doing kind of wonderful and important things, and I think it's the most crucial move uh, the you know the digital humanities has seen and necessarily so um and of course you know again it's kind of about intersectionality it's about histories it's about surfacing narratives that we didn't hear before and um yeah it's, it's just great to see that that's you know getting pride of place and and also something really uh, interesting that i was telling somebody else about the other day and they were very surprised about was um peer review and how feminist peer review can be very different in terms of open, you know, non-blind peer review, you know, kind of this, this spirit of generosity that a lot of digital humanities feminist work demonstrates, um, which makes the academy a kinder place. And I think that's uh, very necessary and a great thing to see as well. So, um, Pedmini, you're working on a project called Gendering the Smart City. And yes, we'd like yes. to know more about this and how you got started. Yes, yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, this was a project um, that was um, came to me uh, via uh, a professor of urban geography called Iona Datta. Um, she was at King's College London when we started, and now she's moved to University College London. Um, and it was a network grant to um, basically just address the very simple question that uh, in conceptions of the smart city, which is you know obviously a kind of a an uh, in international phenomenon to which India is not immune, um, that gender is not usually considered as a vector. So it, it's, you know, the smart city policy framework kind of assumes that everybody experiences the city in the same way, which is, of course, incredibly far from the truth. So, um, so gendering the smart city was basically a way to kind of intervene and to demonstrate in ways in which gender uh, characterizes our relationship to the city. Um, so it's a two-phase project. We've got we've had the first phase, which has been completed in Delhi, where we were working with um, a group of young women between the ages of 18 and 25, who live in a resettlement colony. So it's it's quite marginal. Um, it's you know it's kind of they've been moved from um, you know where they were originally living. Um, and that happened because they are from quite disadvantaged communities. Um, and uh, we were working with them through an NGO called Jaguri, who has been, um, they've been embedded in that area for quite a few years now. So the young women we were working with were incredibly dynamic. They all had their own mobile phones, which they had desperately, like you know, that was one thing that they really wanted to earn money to own. Um, so they kind of mediated the city and everything basically through their phones. Uh, and so they were a great group of, uh, young women to work with and while we worked with them we did three things one was we asked them to keep what we call a whatsapp diary so they were using whatsapp the messaging service as um, a way to just talk about their experiences in the city and it was um you know, it could be very mundane and quotidian, like, you know, the, the streets are flooded and, you know, we can't, you know, we can't make it to the metro station or something like that, to the very 
you know, kind of dramatic, like there was a there was a boy who was murdered in front of a CCTV in their neighborhood, and you know, so and the documentation of that and the messages, you know, kind of um, being exchanged to and fro. So it was kind of like a kind of a thick, you know, autoethnography, I guess, of the way they encountered the city. Um, the second thing that we did was, um, as I said, I, I've worked with uh, Wikipedia in the past, and we did an edit-a-thon with them uh, about their neighborhood. So their neighborhood is called Madhanpur Khadar. As you know, because it's a resettlement colony, it has no visibility in the larger idea of what Delhi is. So if you look at Wikipedia and you look up Delhi, you find, you know, posh neighborhoods or, you know, the, where all the government buildings are, etc. But their neighborhood has no presence there. So, um, so we basically wrote a Wikipedia article about their neighborhood. And um, uh, we did it in Hindi because that's the language they speak. So we kind of did it both in Hindi and in English. And also just, you know, mapping the neighborhood with them was really interesting because the names that they have for spaces are very colloquial. And we put those in the Wikipedia article. We haven't kind of, you know, gone to Google Maps and, you know, said, okay, this is the correct name because we feel like the lived experience of a neighborhood is far more important than you know what the what google maps says for example about your neighborhood so i think it was a small gesture towards pushing back um against the googleization of everything because there is definitely i mean like we know that google with sidewalk for example is you know really pushing this this kind of agenda elsewhere and here as well so uh so so that was the second thing we did and the last thing that we did was um the girls did a hip-hop song about uh, about you know life in the city and you know how tough it is and that went kind of vaguely viral they've been asked to perform it on several occasions now um so that was great and you know they, they really enjoyed that we had a proper choreographer and a proper you know music uh, director and so they really really enjoyed doing that so so that was the delhi phase and now we're uh, we're coming to bangalore uh, in bangalore because um because i'm here i wanted to kind of extend the meaning of what we meant by gender because the delhi um phase was very female centric so we're opening it up a lot more to you know accommodate or to think about how queer bodies and trans bodies um, negotiate space, how how um, caste uh, you know bodies defined by caste negotiate space, and so we're trying to make it more about you know how how does the marginalized um, kind of engage with the city, uh, and what we want to do as an output is to create a kind of um, a traveling installation that demystifies automated de decision making and to think about how can communities how can community decisions be translated into automated machine decisions and is that even possible so interesting it's fascinating it's like i want to <laughs> rethink how i live in my city and what my how my gender sort of sees it differently from men Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, and that that's that's like we're wrapping up and that's it, right? It's kind of uh gender and space and um our takeaways. Meg, do you want to start cuz you just started? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, when I had this is sort of a different way of negotiating space, but you know, when I had a kid in a stroller, I saw the city really differently, and so it mm -hmm. made me think about being able-bodied. Um mm -hmm. and now I'm thinking about, you know, how do I see things differently from, you know, men or yeah. other people? Lee uh, I, I think that it's really, I'm always trying to think of it in terms of um, thinking through the physical space that we inhabit, um, as well as the online spaces that we sort of embody and how those two things intersect with one another in a lot of ways. Obviously, especially when we talk about the internet of things um, and how, 
how we can move and how we move through spaces online versus how we're allowed to move through spaces as we were talking about how online has opened up spaces for a lot of these conversations to take place that weren't allowed to take place in, in physical spaces typically. Mm -hmm. And so, the, so raising those voices, amplifying those voices and, and finding those connections and how that carries over into the physical space and then vice versa. So I'm, I'm I, I don't know if that's a takeaway or just something that I'm thinking more deeply about or reminding me about it through this conversation. And you've just reminded me that, you know, it's kind of like you can never stop thinking critically. <laughs> like the minute you just are like, okay, this is, this is means like white upper middle uh, patriarchy, right? Because that's the fallback. And so the minute you stop thinking about the way your room is set up or the way you construct space or the way you navigate through a city, that means the default is um, those that are in power. And so it just, it kind of reminds me, I, you always have to be thinking about how is this space gendered and how does it prioritize um, men in in this space when we let the default happen we are letting those in power uh, define the space so padmini any takeaways for you before we wrap up yes uh well i think i mean it's 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 just really great to hear the perspectives of of people elsewhere because i think as you were saying it's really it's really difficult when you live in um environments like this to stop thinking critically and sometimes i wish we had the luxury of doing that yes. um and uh because it can be tiring uh and i think you know that's where kind of self-care um and kind of solidarities um you know play a huge role and so i think that's something that we are learning to pay uh really close attention to right now uh but it's also wonderful to have that feeling from you know from international friends and colleagues as well so thanks very much oh thank you Okay, listeners, here's this week's assignment. Take a designed space, any space, a conference room, your office, a space in a city, or an online space. Pay close attention to how this space is designed and who the space is really created for. And share your story with us on IG, Twitter, or Facebook and tag us at UVenus and we'll retweet, share in our story, and post on Facebook. As always, thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week with more on The View from Venus.